the psalmist says, there's one thing that I'm going to desire. There's one thing that I'm going to lean into. There's one thing that I'm going to seek of the Lord that I could just dwell with him and gaze upon his beauty. I want us to think about a question this morning. What if we lived that way? What if we lived here at Norris Ferry as people who lived simply to dwell with the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty? It almost seems completely unrealistic and totally out of touch with reality even to ask the question, doesn't it? I mean, we have more things pulling on our time than we have time to give. The stack on our desk at work never really seems to get much smaller. And even more personal, more demanding, the kids that live under our roofs, they never really seem to get less demanding, do they? We have more things pulling on us. Our relationships, our responsibilities pull on us every second of every day and even run through our minds as we sleep, keeping us awake. But what if we lived this way? What would that even look like for us? We're invited to live this way. At the end of our Bibles, in Revelation 3.20, we get an intriguing picture of this invitation. Jesus is speaking to a church that had lost this kind of single-minded living, and he issues this invitation. He tells them this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody who just listens to my voice and who opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is talking to Christians here. Jesus is talking to us. He's saying, I'm standing at your door, Norris Ferry Community Church. Anybody in there who will just hear my voice and open the door, I'll I'll dwell with you. I'll have intimate fellowship with you. Jesus is issuing an invitation for intimate fellowship with him. So the question obviously becomes, well, how do we respond to that invitation in the reality and the grind of life in the daily routine of life? How do I respond to Jesus's invitation to intimacy? And as we look at our passage today, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, we see we respond to Jesus's invitation through the daily practical practice of prayer. The often not magical, just the daily grind of the practice of prayer. Why? Our passage will tell us today that prayer is the way that God makes things real to us. Three things that he makes real to us through prayer. Who we are, his supremacy, and his perfect provision for our every need. The Lord makes real to us through prayer our identity in him, his supremacy, and his perfect provision for us. Notice I said he makes real to us. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, all of us, or at least most of us, would be able to give good Sunday school answers to the questions. You can do it with me. What is our true identity? Well, we'd say, of course, David, our true identity is we're children of God. We're hidden in Christ. Duh. Or we could give good Sunday school answers to say, is God supreme? Yeah, this is obvious. I mean, we've, we've gotten past this. We're in like level two now. We know God is supreme. And if I said, does God perfectly provide for your every need? 
we'd all say, of course, he's the provider. He's got cattle on a thousand hills. We all know this stuff. Let's move on. We all know these facts. We all know these truths. But that's not the question. The question is, do these truths transform us and define us? To borrow an illustration from Jonathan Edwards, are these truths sweet to us? In one of his famous sermons, Jonathan Edwards noted, there's two ways to know about honey. You can either intellectually know that honey is sweet, or you can put the stuff on your tongue. There's a difference. You could today go to Google and insert honey definition. And here's what you'll find. A sweet, sticky, yellowish-brown fluid made by bees and other insects from nectar collected from flowers. That sounds delicious. Or you can go home, get a jar of it, and put it on freshly out of the oven, a homemade biscuit, and just dig into that thing. Now, now which is better? Which is better? I'm going to take a poll. Who's going for Google? Who's going for the homemade biscuit? We all know that digging into that homemade biscuit and tasting the sweetness of honey with our tongue is better. And that's the type of knowledge we're talking about that's made available to us through prayer. We not only just know, yes, I am a child of God. It becomes real to us. It starts to transform us and define us. It becomes, in Edwards' terminology, sweet to us. We not only know that God is supreme, The reality of his supremacy starts to take a grip of our hearts, starts to transform us, starts to define who we are. We not only know that God provides for our every need, the reality of his perfect provision starts to grip our hearts and starts to transform the way we think about life and what we need. It starts to become sweet to us. Jesus, this morning, is issuing us an invitation for intimacy We learn we respond through prayer. But how practically does this work? First, prayer makes real to us our true identity. Jesus, in this passage, the Lord's Prayer, one of the most famous passages in our Bible, not only gives us a picture of this prayer, he's not teaching us everything there is to know about prayer. He knows about Psalms, okay? But he's giving us a picture. But he's making it clear from the very first verse that he's the only way we can pray the Lord's Prayer. He's the means to this prayer. Look at Matthew 6, 9 with me. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. There's a lot of great, deep theological definitions of prayer, but perhaps one of the simplest, and for me, one of the most profound, is that prayer is a conversation between children and their heavenly Father. It's a prayer between children and their heavenly father. If you're a parent or if you're a grandparent, this gives you a great insight into the nature and intimacy of prayer. Just think of those tender moments. Now, not the moments over the holiday season where your children were driving you to the brink of insanity. Not those moments, but the tender moments. Think of those moments. It's not a time for formality, is it? It's not a time where we come to our children and try to try out our new theological long words, is it? Formality is lost on children. It's silly to them. They don't even know what it means. It's silly. All they want to do is crawl up into your lap and talk to you. Or one of my favorite things with Bliss is to, she asks me to lay with her as she goes to sleep, and that girl just tells me about whatever is on her mind. It's always very interesting. This is a powerful picture of intimacy. Not only from the children's side, that we have this type of access to God, 
but that God, as our Father, takes pleasure in us. When I was getting ready this morning, Bliss looked at me and I was getting dressed. She said, Daddy, you're handsome. You're always handsome. I was like, you are so wise. But (laughs) it just meant, you know, it just means so much. We take such pleasure in our children. God is seen in Zephaniah 3, 7 as dancing over us. We're not only his children because we have to be. He delights in us. But we're not talking about our earthly father, our earthly grandparent. We're talking about our father in heaven. And for some of you in this room, that is an important distinction because you didn't experience intimacy with your father. You experienced hurt, disappointment, frustration. And so this is a grace for you. We're not praying to our earthly father. We're praying to our father in heaven. He's the perfect father that we never had. He's the father who isn't plagued with the imperfections that our fathers are plagued with. And on a more personal level, if you're a parent, he's the father who's plagued with the imperfect, not plagued with the imperfections that we are plagued with. This is the one who's seen in the first verse of our Bible, Genesis 1-1, creating everything that's been created, and it was good. He's the one that all of the Bible is screaming the message that he is greater, more excellent than we could ever fathom. And his excellence means, among other things, that he is more holy than we can ever fathom. But that's a problem for us, isn't it? His holiness is a problem because we're not holy. And here's where we're confronted with the truth and reality of the gospel. Because God, the God of all the universe, can't be our father. He can only be our father. We can only be his children if we're hidden in Christ, the perfect son. We can only say, Abba, Father, if our sin, all of it, past, present, and future, has been placed upon his shoulders when he died upon the cross. And when he rose from the grave, his perfect righteousness was credited to us. That's the only way we can say, Father, our Father in heaven. But it even gets better than that. When Christ ascended to the Father, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one through whom we can pray, Abba, Father. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 15. And it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as believers, who bears witness to our spirit that we are his children. Prayer is a conversation between children and their heavenly father. And these are the life-altering truths that become sweet to us, that start to grip us, start to transform and define us as we come to the Lord and pray, our father, in heaven. There's a lot there, isn't there? And it's as our reality becomes real to us, which is the foundation of all prayer, that we can finally start to taste of the greatness of his supremacy. See, God's supremacy, unless he's our father, is somewhat of an abstract concept, maybe even a scary concept, or at least it should be if we understand it properly. But when he's our father, we're talking about our father, his greatness is sweet. And prayer makes real to us the supremacy of God's name, his kingdom, and his will. Look at Matthew 6, 9 through 10 with me. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice there's three petitions here. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how do these prayers draw us into intimate fellowship with the Lord? Well, let's take them 
one at a time, hallowed be your name. To pray hallowed be your name is to pray that the name of the Lord would be revered throughout all of the earth. To pray that the name of the Lord would be holy or set apart in all of the earth. That the name of the Lord would be glorified or worshipped, praised, exalted in all of the earth. And as we pray this prayer, we join a major theme running throughout all of Scripture. John Piper helpfully surveys all of the Bible and takes from Scripture certain sentences that I can read. I wish we could read all the Scriptures, but we don't have time. But Piper helps us see this concept that all of the Bible, all of history, is about God's glory and the glory of His name. We'll trace it out together. God created us for His glory. God called Israel for his glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify his name. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. God did not cast away his people, though they rebelled again and again and again, if you read the story. Why? For the glory of his name. God restored Israel from exile For the glory of his name, Jesus sought the glory of the Father and all that he did. Over and over again, he prayed this. Jesus told us to do good works. Why? So that God would be glorified. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering. Why? For God's glory. God forgives our sin for his own sake, for the glory of his name, his own glory. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, the Son of God. God instructs us to do everything that we do for the glory of God. Jesus is coming again. Why? For the glory of God. And God's plan is to fill all of the earth with his glory. Are you starting to catch the theme? It's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about his name and his glory. But what name of the Lord is to be hallowed? The Lord has many names throughout Scripture. All of them are wonderful. All of them teach a different attribute or characteristic about God. But what name do we have in view primarily here The most pervasive and significant name for the Lord throughout the Old Testament is Yahweh. Uh, And we get the most information about the meaning of this name in Exodus 3, 14 through 15. If you remember Exodus, this is when Moses is trying to get out of the job of being the deliverer. He's like, come on, can't you send somebody else? And in part of his weaseling out of it, he asked the Lord point blank. He said, okay, well, if they ask your name, who, who should I tell them has sent me? Um, And the Lord gives him this direct answer. The Lord says, okay, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, the Lord is saying his name, Yahweh, which is translated Lord in our Bibles, means I am who I am. God is huge. You can plumb the depth of the meaning of that phrase for all of your life, all of eternity, and you'll never get to the bottom. But again, John Piper helps us by bringing out certain implications. I am who I am means God exists. Stating the obvious, but his existence, if he is I am who I am, the God of all creation, should change the way we do everything and think about everything. He's also, there's no reality that exists behind God. God is, to use the famous phrase, the uncaused cause. He's behind everything. He's greater than everything. He's the originator of everything. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's constant. He's I am who I am. And he's an inexhaustible source of energy, meaning 
Everything that has life, everything that has breath, it finds its origin in God. And he holds all things together. He sustains all things. This is a big, awesome God. So again, how does this prayer, hallowed be your name, draw us into intimate fellowship with him? Well, it helps us remember not only is he our father, but he's also our Lord. He's I am who I am. The sovereign, uncreated one over all creation. We can draw near to him, but we still have to bow the knee. Matt Redman, one of my favorite Christian artists, in one of his first albums entitled The Friendship and the Fear, said this in the title track. I am longing to discover both the closeness and the awe. Fear the nearness of your whisper. Hear the glory of your roar. Just knowing you, hearing you speak, seeing you move mysteriously, I want the friendship and the fear of knowing you. We draw near to him, yes, through our union in Christ as his children, but we also bow the knee to him as our sovereign Lord and King. He's both our Father and our King at the same time. And it's because he's our King that we pray, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This brings us back to Genesis 3.15, where the Lord in the wake of the fall promises that all things that were lost in the fall would be restored. He makes a great promise in 3.15, and the rest of the Bible is tracing the fulfillment of this promise. And the fulfillment is marked by several covenants that the Lord makes with his people. One of these covenants is with King David in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord promises David that one of his sons would be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom through which all this promised restoration would come about. And so we read the rest of the Old Testament. We're like, man, when is this king going to come? When is this son of David going to come and be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom? And we look the whole Old Testament, we get to the end of Malachi, and we're like, he hasn't come. And then 400 years after the closing of the Old Testament, the people of the Lord are waiting and looking and waiting, and he hasn't come, he hasn't come, he hasn't come. But the wait ends on Christmas. The wait ends in the first verse of our New Testament. Matthew 1.1 says this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David. Jesus is the promised son of David who's going to be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. And it's amazing. People are starting to grasp this partially. But then Jesus' teaching is somewhat confusing because we expect it in the Old Testament. Man, this is going to be a day of the Lord. This is going to be an eternal kingdom. Everything was going to be put right. All the restoration would come. But yet Jesus speaks of a time where the kingdom of heaven, this promised kingdom, and the kingdom of the earth are going to coexist for a while. And that there's going to be battle, there's going to be war between these two kingdoms. And it's in the context of this war that we as people of the kingdom pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, your restoration come, Lord, you promised. Defeat the kingdom of the earth, bring about the ultimate restoration that you promised. And as we pray, we don't pray without hope because we see at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, one day the promised kingdom will come to full bloom. One day, all the restoration will come about because we hear of a time and a new heavens and a new earth where God comes down and dwells with his people intimately and he 
wipes away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. All that things, all those things, all the consequences of the fall, every remnant of the kingdom of earth is going to be defeated and thrown away and will enjoy the promised restoration. That time hasn't come yet, has it? And we're to pray for its coming. But how does this bring us into intimacy with the Lord to pray, your kingdom come? Well, it's pretty obvious. It connects us with the Lord, what he's been doing from the beginning of time, bringing about his kingdom, and it helps us view our life and reality and how we can be participants in bringing about the kingdom on earth as we live as his subjects. The final portion of the Lord's Prayer seeking to make real to us God's supremacy is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. May your will just penetrate the kingdom of the earth as it's fully happening in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a cosmic implication of this prayer. Obviously, throughout all history, we're praying that the Lord's will would be done in the lives of everyone in every nation, every tribe, every people group. But there's also a much more personal application of this prayer. As we pray to the Lord, your will be done, what will are we laying down? Our own. When we pray, Lord, your will be done, we're acknowledging that we're limited beings and that honestly we don't have all the facts. And even if we did have all the facts, we're not smart enough to put it all together. Tim Keller says this in his new book on prayer, which I highly recommend. He says this, If we can't say thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. Yet, to control life like this is beyond our abilities, and we will just dash ourselves upon the rocks. Anybody here this morning wishing they had a little more peace? Anybody feeling the wounds of being dashed upon the rocks of trying to control your life? Last night and this morning, this passage really, really convicted me. The best example we see of this in the Bible is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His crucifixion is coming. His betrayal is about to come at one of his disciples with the kiss. And we see him praying, asking his disciples to pray. His soul is very sorrowful even to death. We see him walking away from his disciples and falling on his face. Jesus is at the end of himself. He spent himself completely and he utters this prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is suffering on a level, on a degree that we cannot fathom. And he says in his last prayer, your will be done, not mine. In all of our anxieties, our struggles, our pains, our hardships, our difficult relationships, our uncertainties were invited to find rest for our souls as we struggle to acknowledge the supremacy of God's will. It's not easy for us, but 
But as we lean into the Lord and struggle to concede, Lord, your will be done. You know more than I do. You are supreme. We'll find rest for our soul. And it's as the Lord's name, his will, his kingdom becomes supreme in our life that we find intimacy with him because we're not living for our name, for our kingdom, or our will. And as we subject ourselves to his supremacy as people of the kingdom, we'll be able to rejoice in the name that is above every other name, so that at one day every knee will bow and worship this name. We'll be able to pour out our lives gladly for the advancement of his kingdom as we lay down pursuing our own, and we'll find true peace for our souls as we rest in the supremacy of his will and acknowledge our limited nature. And it's only then as we know who we truly are through prayer, as we really taste and are transformed by his supremacy of his name, his kingdom, and will, that we can come to the Lord and really rightly ask him for stuff. Because if we come to him without a realization, a deep realization of those things, we're going to come to him just with a laundry list of, hey, hey, Lord, I need this and this and this and this. And if these things are supreme in our heart, God can't give us those things because he's given us stuff that's going to feed our idols. A loving God isn't going to do that. But it's only as we know who we are, that we're his children, that we're loved, that he delights in us, and we know, Lord, you're supreme, your name, your kingdom, your will, that we can come, Lord, I need you to meet my very real practical needs this day. I'm weak and limited. And prayer allows us to experience and be transformed by the fact that he does actually provide perfectly for our needs. Look at Matthew 6, 11 through 13 with me. Again, there's three petitions here in this part of the prayer as well. We read, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. We are drawn into intimate fellowship with the Lord as we see him as our only provider, as the one who longs to and does meet our every need. Let's look at these one by one. Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. If you look at that prayer and you study it closely, there's one thing that's glaringly absent from it. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. The materialism in our culture that so permeates who we are that it creeps into our minds and our hearts, my mind and my heart, without me even realizing it. It brings to mind the great prayer in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, that says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Is that how you seek the Lord? It's challenging to us, isn't it? But as we understand who we are, as we understand the Lord's supremacy, as we understand that we're people of his kingdom, our needs by his grace and by his spirit are redefined. And we can see, yes, this is something I truly need, or this is something that my culture has told me I need and that I deserve, but that I don't need. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And as we properly understand our needs and as we see him as the giver of our needs, we can rejoice and enjoy intimate fellowship with him as we see him as 
the fount of every blessing. For as Christians, our enjoyment doesn't end with the thing that he gives us, but we're led to a worship of the one who gave it to us as our fount of every blessing. And as we see in this prayer, he not only meets our physical needs, he also meets our spiritual needs, which is why, as we've been learning through Hebrews, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and ask him to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We've already said we are forgiven only because of the work of Christ on the cross, that our sin was placed upon him, his righteousness was placed upon us, and the Father looks at us now through Christ and says, you're holy and blameless and above reproach. But the message of this prayer is pretty clear. If you've experienced this type of forgiveness, you will forgive. If you've experienced this type of forgiveness, you will forgive. As Christians, we're not given the option not to forgive. It's a hard teaching, isn't it? Especially maybe around the holidays when you've been around more family for longer periods of time than maybe you're used to or maybe you would want or maybe not. We're not given the option to forgive. This is a hard, hard teaching. One that Matthew, uh, that Jesus expounds on in Matthew 18 21 through 35, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, it's probably a familiar passage to us. We read about a servant who goes to his master and is forgiven a huge sum of money, 10 million, 20 million bucks. If he wasn't forgiven, he was going to be thrown into jail. His wife was going to be thrown into jail. Everything he valued in this world was going to be lost. But the master had grace upon him and said, for some reason, your your debt is totally forgiven. And the forgiven servant walks out of that courtroom, as it were, and sees his other fellow servant who owes him like five bucks and says, hey, man, you're going to jail until you can pay me back. And everybody in the story is going, whoa, wait, what? You just got forgiven like 20 million bucks. You're you're putting him in jail over a quarter pounder? What's your problem, man? And as we look at this story, we can all see, of course, If we've experienced the cross of Jesus Christ, where all of our sin, past, present, and future, was placed upon his shoulders, that he died a brutal death for me and rose to make me righteous and conquer death, the final victory, if if that's real to me, if I've tasted that, if that transforms and defines me, I have no option but to forgive. Now, that's not to say that forgiveness is easy. And it's not to say that forgiveness will happen perfectly in this life. Paul is clear on his teaching that we have the flesh and we have the spirit. And man, those things are doing battle with one another. Our spirit wants to grant forgiveness because we taste of this and our flesh wants to punch them in the face. And this battle, this tension is real and it's happening. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a stubborn refusal to forgive someone who's wronged you. We don't have that option. Our only option is to lean into the Lord to make his forgiveness more real to us so that we can look to those who wrong us and forgive them by his grace through the power of his Holy Spirit. Protection. The final petition of the Lord's prayer seeks the Lord's protection. It says this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. He says this, keep us safe from ourselves, 
and the devil. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. I don't know if you guys can relate to that message, but I think we all need a good, fair amount of protection from ourselves. I've learned in in my walking with the Lord over these years that our victory over temptation, our victory over sin is never going to come through a steel will. Man, I'm going to abstain from that sin. I'm just going to say no. I'm bigger than that. Our victory long-term over temptation comes when the reality of who we are in Christ and his supremacy starts to take hold of our hearts and we look and we know we're going to get more out of our relationship with the Lord than what we think we're going to get from that thing. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in his work, The Weight of Glory. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem to our Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We need protection from ourself. We need a deeper reality of who we are in Christ, of his supremacy, but we also need protection from our great adversary, the devil. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As we already said, we're living in a time where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the earth are coexisting and at war with one another. In case you didn't know, we're at war. We have a real enemy who's seeking to destroy us and seeking to destroy everything we value and hold dear. Our marriages, our relationships, our integrity. Man, he's doing a pretty darn good job, isn't he? We find intimacy with the Lord as we go under the shadow of his wings for protection in the midst of battle. Well, it's a great prayer, isn't it? The psalmist at the beginning of our time says, I'm going to be about a person who solely seeks to dwell with the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. We see Jesus giving that invitation in Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock, just hear my voice and open the door and I'll dwell with you. I'll dine with you and you with me. And we learn that we respond to that invitation through prayer. By, by prayer, the Lord makes real to us who we are, his supremacy, the supremacy of his name, his kingdom and his will. And then as we get that, as that starts to transform us and grip us, then we can understand I can come to the Lord to, with my real practical needs and he'll provide what I need for my daily bread, for forgiveness. He'll empower me to forgive others and he'll protect me from myself and from the devil. So piece of cake, right? A plus B equals C. We can go home. Amen. Easy. Wrong. <laughs> prayer is hard. There's nothing about prayer that's easy. You're not going to walk out of this sermon and just have automatically, man, I am Mother Teresa, or I'm Martin Luther, or I'm, I'm C.S. Lewis, I'm John Calvin. Doesn't work that way. Our culture wants instant gratification, doesn't it? 
I mean, it demands it. Netflix, man, I push one button. I've got any show I want, any movie I want, iTunes, I can get any song I want, Spotify. Man, I've got anything for free. It's just at my fingertips. But God doesn't, it doesn't work that way. When I was in seventh grade, I was starting to understand that girls like guys who had more muscle than I did and less flab. And so I asked mom and dad for a free weight set. And they obliged. We lived in Illinois at the time, and we had a basement. And I took those boxes down to the basement, and, man, I was pumped up. I ripped that stuff open. I, put, uh, I got the, the, dumb, or the bar out. I put weights on both sides. And, man, that first night, I tore it up. I did curls until I could not lift my arms. I got up the next day, just kind of knowing before I looked in, I was going to be Popeye. And I looked in the mirror, and man, my arms looked exactly the same. I was crushed. The only difference was I couldn't really feel them. And so I went to my dad, and I was like, Dad, man, what's up? I got, I mean, I've learned if you lift weights, you get buff. And I lifted weights, and here I am. And, and what, what's wrong? And Dad, I mean, being a parent, you know he just had to be cracking up. And he was like, well, son, probably take about three weeks of constant workouts every day before you start to see any change. And even then, it's going to be a small change. It's going to be a gradual process. Man, I was crushed. There were girls in junior high right then. I needed that today. Uh, and, and so it is with prayer. One of my mentors in seminary said this, David, the secret of being excellent is being average every day. The secret of being excellent is being average every day. And I think we can apply that to prayer. The secret to having an extraordinary prayer life is to have an average prayer life every day. So a lot of times it's not going to be magical. A lot of times it's going to be, did anything happen here? That's okay. Lean in. Don't give up. Don't be frustrated. Labor, but labor, as Paul tells us, with all the strength that he gives us. You're not alone in your struggle. you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the invitation is this at Norris Ferry. As we think about 2015, man, could we just be a people who lean into the Lord and really primarily seek to dwell with him and to gaze upon his beauty? Wouldn't that be awesome? In the grind and the routine of our life, just to lean and say, Lord, you know what? I want a lot of stuff. I'm uncertain about a lot of stuff, but I'm just going to sit here until I feel it, I want, to make, I want you to make real to me through prayer who I am in you, that I'm your child. I want you to make real through prayer to me your supremacy, the supremacy of your name, the supremacy of your kingdom, the supremacy of your will. I want that, Lord, and I want to be able to know perfectly and rest my heart in the fact that you are going to perfectly supply my every need. That's the invitation for us as we start this new year. And man, if you're here and you're not a believer, here's the reality. There's the God of all the creation who wants to have an intimate fellowship with you. And I know if if you were like I was before I came to Christ, you're listening to that going, dude, you are crazy. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. That's the testimony of the entirety of the scriptures. That is what we're all about here at Norris Ferry Community Church. The call of the gospel is simply a call to believe that Christ came on Christmas for you, that he lived a perfect life for you, 
that he went upon a cross. He died a brutal death, paying the penalty and the debt that you owed, that you deserve. And that as he rose from the grave, his perfect righteousness can be credited to you through faith so that the Father, the God of all creation, can look upon you this morning, perhaps for the first time, and say, you're holy, you're blameless, and above reproach. I hope that you believe that this morning if it's for the first time. And I hope us as believers will lean in in 2015. I want to close our time by praying the Lord's Prayer, and then I think we have a commissioning uh, for Josh and Ani Ingram. Can we get it up? Oh, Josh is the one doing the slides. (laughs) Oh, okay, we're doing it again. All right, I'll wait. Can we go? The Lord's Prayer? And we're nailing this ending, aren't we? All right, I'll, I'll pray it over us. If it does. Oh, there we go. All right. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Tracy, you want to come up?